Welcome, and thank you for joining this On Aging Conversation. My name is Aman Fazel. I'm the coordinator for emergency response and partnerships at United Way British Columbia. And I'm tagging in for my colleague, Barbara McMillan, Provincial Community Engagement Coordinator for United Way British Columbia's Healthy Aging Team. I'd like to start by acknowledging and expressing appreciation for the opportunity to live, work, and gather on the traditional ancestral territories of all First Nations in this land we now call Canada. On Aging Conversations is a collaboration between Healthy Aging Corps and Help Age Canada. If you missed earlier episodes, you can find them on Apple or Anchor Podcasts, on YouTube, and on Healthy Aging Corps Canada, the national knowledge hub connecting agencies that support and advance independent living for older Canadians, and the lineup of on aging speakers on CORE and links to the recordings, along with a lot of other interesting and useful information can be delivered to your inbox if you're signed up for the twice-monthly CORE e-newsletter on www.healthyagingcore.ca. In our work with CORE, HelpAge, and the extraordinary network of community-based seniors serving agencies, volunteers, and professionals across Canada, we are privileged to encounter many thought leaders and innovators in the field of healthy aging, and so On Aging Conversations was launched to bring some of these ideas, innovations, and perspectives to a wider audience. And that's it. A 30-minute conversation with a featured guest providing healthy aging information, ideas, and inspiration every two weeks. And now I'll turn it over to Gregor Snedden, CEO of HelpAge Canada, your host for On Aging. Thanks, Iman, and welcome, everyone. HelpAge Canada supports community-based initiatives through its partnerships across Canada and abroad to improve the lives of older persons and their communities. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Shannon Jarrett. Shannon Jarrett is a professor of social work at The Ohio State University. Her research focuses on intergenerational community building strategies. She's trained as a gerontologist, and Dr. Jarrett has studied community-based services, therapeutic programming, and research strategies involving a wide range of youth and older adults possessing diverse strengths and needs such as chronic disease and disability. Dr. Jarrett collaborates extensively with students, practitioners, and researchers across diverse disciplines and has contributed to the United Nations, NIH, USDA, and international efforts to promote developmental theory, research, and practice. Welcome to On Aging, Shannon. Thanks, Gregor. I'm glad to be here. I think this is the first time we've actually had someone down there from across the border in the land of the brave. And so you are there in Columbus, Ohio, isn't that right? That's correct. And I do have some Canadian roots. Oh, do tell. Well, actually, the reason that I do what I do is because of my relationship with my grandmother, who is from Edmonton. And so I had a really important road trip with her when I turned 16. She was in the routine of going to Edmonton during the summers, staying with her sister, and I drove with her. Let's see, she would have been, I think, 81 at the time. I drove with her and her niece from Edmonton out to Vancouver. It was the year of the Grand Expo in Vancouver, and we had a a really lovely, lovely time. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, how did you get where you are now? Tell us just a little bit about yourself, your journey into social work, gerontology, and intergenerational work in particular. What's the thread there? Well, probably 
probably like a lot of us, uh, that relationship I had with my grandmother was really close. And she provided a lot of care to me and my sister when we were young. My dad was in the Navy, and so he was overseas six months at a time. And my mom was working, and so she needed help. And my grandmother provided it. And then when I was 16, my parents had my brother. And so I had a little bit more perspective by then and was able to think like, this is probably what it was like when she was taking care of us when we were little. And we saw that my brother just thrived in her care day to day. And she frequently told us that he gave her a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And so that was a real inspiration to think about how I could help young people and older adults who don't have those kinds of family ties to enjoy the benefits of close intergenerational relationships. In graduate school, I got introduced to work with uh, frail older adults through research with adult day services. And those provide day programming and supervision and services to older adults who might be physically or cognitively frail. They might have memory problems such as Alzheimer's disease. And that got me thinking about setting where you might bring young and older people together for intentional, beneficial therapeutic programming. It's always been something that I've always observed. I can't remember who really stated this for me, so I can't claim it as my own. But in our society in Canada, where in many ways the religious community, like church life, which is kind of now it's receding generally in most parts, many places in Canada. And somebody pointed out it's the last intergenerational institution where you have all these intergenerational people, different ages gathered together sharing shoulder to shoulder, living together, participating. And with that not being a part of the fabric of our society anymore, where else can you go to engage in and have these intergenerational relationships? I had a friend come and visit from an African country, and that was his first observation is, you know, where are all the elders? Doesn't see them anywhere. Uh, and Canada, you know, we were horrified, a great blemish for us. Of all the uh, first world countries, we had the highest deaths in COVID-19 in long-term care. We've come to this place where we seem to just shuffle older people off to long-term care facilities and the, the opportunity to engage in relationships just is no longer there. And yet we know so well that intergenerational relationships affects ageism, it creates a more compassionate and a more tolerant and inclusive society. And your work, you know, you just Google your name and there's just some fantastic material out there that you have written and contributed to. And in particular, there's the All In Together, creating spaces where young and old thrive in 2018 and the follow-up, the best of both worlds, a closer look in 2019. And now you've developed this amazing intergenerational toolkit for professionals, which is just outstanding work that I encourage every all our listeners to check out. Let's dive in and talk about that. What did you find out when you started doing Doing this research and really looking into it. Sure. It's really quite a paradox, this description you offer of not seeing older adults in places where you see young people. Because at the same time, with life expectancies generally increasing, they're actually starting to go down a little bit in the U.S. right now, people have got more and more years in which to enjoy and to engage in intergenerational relationships. But sometimes we make it really hard for those different age groups to get together. 
When I first started my work, my concentration was on the young and older people at the center of the programming. And while that makes sense at some level, it neglected to take into account how important the people and the environment surrounding those young and older people are on the success of that interaction. And so, for example, in early programming that I did, I have a really clear memory of a teacher who came over with the children to the adult day services program, standing in the back of the room, up against the wall, looking really uncomfortable in that space. And it occurred to me, why shouldn't she be uncomfortable in this space? She's trained to work with young children. She doesn't have training about what to expect when interacting with adults who might have significant physical limitations or who might be dealing with Alzheimer's or other types of dementia. And that was such an important lesson for me because it clued me into the importance of preparing the physical environment and the social environment so that everything surrounding those young and older people when they came together was in a situation where you could anticipate success and support people who were prepared to attend to the needs and interests of the younger and older people. And so that's where a lot of my work has gone. So the toolkit that you're making reference to, it encompasses a, a culmination of a lot of different studies where I worked really hard with colleagues to watch what were activity leaders or practitioners doing in the intergenerational context that contributed to higher levels of interaction and to positive interaction. And sometimes were there things they might do that might detract from the quality or the amount of interaction that took place? Now, for example, I visited one adult day center that had a child care on site and those kids and older people got together all the time. They had an activities director who really wanted to be a performer, I think. And so when she brought the young and older people together, the appropriate thing for the kids and the seniors to do was to sit quietly and listen to her sing or play her guitar. And that was not helping to facilitate interaction, even if it was something that they all enjoyed. Right, of course. We had some programs in Canada. We operate a number of different programs, and we have experimented with some intergenerational work, particularly around digital literacy, where you have a younger person teaching or coaching an older person. And I have to be honest that it has had mixed success, and that sometimes older people will feel alienated or struggle sometimes connecting with that younger adult to receive that information. And there can be better results learning from peer, someone their own age. Of course, we didn't have the level of expertise that you would be bringing. What creates the right space or the right milieu for positive intergenerational relationship? Sure. I can talk to you about a couple of the different themes and what we found is particularly important. And one thing is to recognize the value of getting your professionals together to share in planning for the programming. It's really common that you've got young people coming in from one type of program or a school or a youth group or a choir or a girls club and uh, a leader from the program that the older adults are coming from. Might be a volunteer program a church or a residence, and they have got specialized knowledge and training. They ought to share that energy and that expertise, the knowledge they have of their participants to co-create their plan for programming. 
And as they're able, they should involve the older adults and young people too. That increases the investment and the chance that people are going to want to participate and that it's going to be age appropriate and that it's going to be uh, ability appropriate for the young and older people. I also find that there are some things that you can do in the physical environment that support relationships. For example, I'll commonly recommend that if you're working with pretty young children and older adults, that you have child size chairs that sit at the same height as the adult chairs that alternate because there's a tendency especially for young people, to want to come into a room and cluster together and sit together. And if all the chairs are the same and they can do that, they might miss out on that opportunity to pair up and interact with an older person. But kids and adults alike will take those cues. If your activity is seated and you've got a child's chair alternating with an adult's chair, you can tell your young people to go and find the chair that's for them. Or you might put a sticker or a card or something on it that cues them in. And so that way you've got a better chance that your child and older person are going to turn to the person next to them, somebody of a different age, and interact with each other. Okay. Also related to that physical environment, if your programming involves materials, we want the young and older people to be sharing them. Don't give everybody their own set of things to complete whatever it is you've asked them to do together. Give them things to share and then offer directions that encourage them to interact with each other. Now, I don't know about you, Gregor. You make your living talking to people and making podcasts. So you might be the hit at any party you go to. But for a lot of us, when we go into a room of strangers, it's uncomfortable. It's hard to know how to interact with each other. And if you think about where young people might be developmentally, or if you think about where the adults are, if they're dealing with some cognitive changes, they can benefit from assistance and some prompts that will help them to enter into this new relationship. Giving them the chance to interact with each other routinely and more than once is really helpful because that's how we build relationships or friendships. We get the chance to get to know each other, to share our stories with each other, and to engage in fun stuff. You don't want to just come together and do work or come together and listen to somebody talk. You want to do something that's fun. Yeah, no, that really makes sense. So it's kind of creating the space for those relationships to happen, honoring everyone's free choice and free will, but but creating opportunity. It's kind of like, uh, you know, going to a coffee hour or something too. you know, go talk to each other. You know, you stand there and you just don't know what to say. But if you can do something shoulder to shoulder, you are inclined to engage in a different way and brings down some of those barriers. That's really neat. Well, I wonder, maybe could you tell us a little bit about what you call these shared site programs, which I think that those are the places where you're doing this kind of thing. Yes, I'll, I'll tell you what shared spaces are, and I'll tell you that I, I think the practices that we're recommending also work with uh, programs that are intergenerational, but maybe don't have everybody already in the same building or in the same set of buildings. So technically, a shared space is a, a single building or maybe a campus where young and older people are receiving services at the same time. Really often, each age group has got its own space. They don't spend all day together 
together. That's hard on young and older people, Mm -hmm. but they have opportunities to come together, whether it's in the older adults activity space or the young people's space, and they routinely have intentional opportunities to interact with each other. In the U.S., and based on that survey whose results were reported in that study that I did a couple of years ago that you referenced, Creating Spaces Where Young and Old Thrive, most of the programs you'll find that meet that qualification or definition of shared space, they're going to be nursing homes or residential care programs for older people that also have a child care center on site. Other types of programs might be adult day services that have a child care center next door. But parks and recreation programs, community centers might qualify as intergenerational programs. There are some really cool models out there, like high schools that have had senior centers on site and residences where young and old people are sharing housing together. Very cool. Very cool. Help Age Canada operates a program called Canada Home Share, where we bring together older people and students and younger people to cohabit and share space together, which is an amazing, amazing program uh, that we're really excited about. Tell us a little bit about the toolkit. How can professionals use it and what's the best practice? Give us the highlights. Well, the item in the toolkit that reflects a lot of studies that I've done is the actual intergenerational program evaluation tool. I call that the IPET. And it is a one-page document that uh, program leaders can use. And it serves both to remind them of what those best practices are to use before, during, and right after the intergenerational activity. And it gives them something in which to reflect on and document what they actually did during the session. And I create this because intergenerational programs often don't have a lot of documentation or evaluation behind them because they're right. unusual. You know, kids in schools are documented like crazy every single day. Older people in care settings, we've got all kinds of day-to-day records on their health and behaviors. Well, we don't really know what it is that we should be capturing when it's young and older people coming together. And so this is something that's intended to be completed really quickly because we know those activity leaders have to go do their other documentation, and they have a lot of other tasks that they have to do on and off the floor. And our idea is that this is a toolkit that could be used by somebody who's new to intergenerational programming, or maybe a group is trying out some really new and innovative programming, and they want to see if it's just as effective to use those same practices, and if the younger and older participants respond as well or better. And it could be something to pull out and use if you feel like interest in the intergenerational programming is dropping off. I'm really glad to have benefited from input from practitioners and researchers in the field who helped me to refine this document. And it does have a guide as well. So the people picking up the toolkit have an idea of what each item looks like. If you can say, yes, I use this practice. You're not trying to just guess based on that simple line of text that's on the form. I also included in the toolkit some resources for people who might be curious about some other things that could be going on. I often hear from practitioners, there's magic when I get these kids and adults together, but they don't quite know how to capture it. Pictures are great. Stories are great. They're so important to share with your audience. But nowadays, 
funders, potential clients, grantors, they want some data as well to show that this program is achieving what they think it does. And so a lot of intergenerational programs don't have trained evaluators on site. Again, they've also got staff who are really busy doing a lot of other things. And so I want to acknowledge that there's lots of ways that practitioners can know and document what their program is achieving, where they might be running into hiccups, so they can talk about it with their colleagues and either address those hiccups, reduce the challenges and barriers, and make sure that they continue to do the things that are working really well. There's one other feature in that toolkit, and that is a catalog of evaluation tools that have been used in research of intergenerational programs and that have some indication that they're a, a trustworthy tool. And so if you were interested in getting a measure of generativity, that's something we associate with older adults feeling like they have shared something of their experience with other people. There's a measure in there that you could use. There's directions on how to use it and even a copy of it that you could print out and ask your older adult participants to complete. So it's intended to be for beginner evaluators experienced evaluators, people who might be working in partnership with trained evaluators, really trying to make it accessible for practitioners to know what they're doing and how it's working in their own setting. That's fantastic. And just for our listeners, you can find the Intergenerational Evaluation Toolkit at Generations United, which is www.gu.org. And it's in the resources section, intergenerational-evaluation-toolkit, or just search for it in the, in the search bar. So that's gu.org is a great location. And you can also find out more about Dr. Jarrett's work at Ohio State University website, or just Google her. And there's all kinds of great resources out there. I want to leave you with one last question, Shannon, if I may, and that is why are intergenerational relationships important? Why should we care? Why would we bother to invest in and support and encourage and develop intergenerational relationships? Well, that was one question, but I've got two answers for you. And the All first right. one is that it's silly if you don't use intergenerational programs. Our young and our older people are often viewed for what they need and what they depend on us middle-aged people for, when in reality, they have talents and gifts to share with each other. And so if you're not doing intergenerational programming, you're missing out on the opportunity to add value to the health and well-being of the young and old people in our lives. The second reason is because intergenerational interactions and programs have a chance to affect how we feel about getting older ourselves. People who have got more positive ideas about growing old have better health and they live longer. So by engaging young people in intergenerational programming that's grounded in evidence, like what we've been talking about today, you've got the chance to put those children on the path towards a healthy, happy old age. Wow. Well said. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Jarrett, we're out of time here, but it's just been a sensational on aging uh, discussion. Thank you so much for bringing a banquet of ideas for us to take away. And we just really appreciate you taking your time to speak with us today. Thank you so much and all the best to you and all your amazing work. It's my pleasure. I've been at it for a while. So I'm glad that uh, you were interested in it.
And thank you to all our listeners. Stay tuned for our next podcast in a couple of weeks.